We are the School of Canine Science and this is Scent for Six. This week we'll introduce our target odour to the dogs, but as always I'm going to give you three different methods and discuss the pros and cons of each. The first is using the scent containment Experienced device. Experienced bloodhounds had a success rate of 96% with no false indications. This is ludicrously high and yet German Shepherds, Labradors, Spaniels and Collies remain the dog of choice for scent work. So why is that? Perhaps it's not just about genetics and hardware. What about the so trends in software? in order to be perceived as scent, the odour molecule must be dissolvable. Why? Because when it lands on the mucous membrane of the epithelium covering those turbinates, it needs to be dissolved at this stage for the cilia to pick up the signal and carry The benefit on. of increasing the dog's sniffing frequency through this exercise isn't solely to improve their detection fitness, but more importantly, allows them the opportunity to practice. Errors in handling creating false indication, but here's the thing. In 2014, a group of scientists got together to have a look at the impact of stress on the performance of explosive detection dogs. The first thing the researchers did was... I wish toxicity was that simple, but it's just not black and white like people think it is. Ultimately, everything is toxic. If you want to understand this properly, we need to start with the fundamental concept of LD50, the median lethal dose. To learn more about this one-of-a-kind olfaction course, check out canilescience.online or click the link in the show notes for a 20% discount. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello and welcome to Canine's Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, out here again for yet another episode and interview at the CNCA conference in Palm Springs. This time, I get to sit down with a friend of mine who I've known now for a couple years. Uh, we first crossed paths at the Western States Canine Conference where I played a little bit of a uh, trick slash test on all the teams that went through the, uh, the seminar at that event. And because of that, uh, we became friends. And ever since, we've been collaborating, working together, and so forth. So without any further ado... Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. Uh, happy to be here. So for those of you, or those that don't know you, I should say, just give a little bit of a background. You know, his name is Chris Oliver. I'll, I'll, I'll save him that part of it. For those of you guys on Facebook or social media, if you look up Chris Oliver, you'll find him. But uh, just give us a quick, you know, rundown of your background, what you've done, and uh, then we'll kind of go from there. Um, so I've uh, I got 20 years in law enforcement. I uh, worked in custody my whole career. Um, been a canine handler now for about eight years. Um, running my third dog. Um, on top of that, off duty, I like to uh, teach detection sport nose work as well as train police canines. What kind of detection dog work do you do at a prison? Uh, so we look for narcotics. Um, I run a single purpose dog, uh, black lab named King. Uh, he's six years old uh, in November or last November. And pretty much we have free reign of the wherever inmates go, in and out of cells, in and out of day rooms, in and out of working environments, uh, in and out of the kitchen type stuff. And 
pretty much the only thing we can't sniff is the people themselves. Okay. What's it what's it like or what are the challenges being a detection dog handler in a jail uh, prison type environment? Oh man, there's so many different odors in there from body odor to human waste odor to food to chemicals that are used for cleaning and different things like that. On top of that, you have different medications that the inmates get. Um, there's just years and years of funk <laughs> that gets built up in yeah. that place. Now, you know, working in that kind of environment, obviously the people that are trying to conceal or hide whether, you know, and obviously there's different things that the dogs are, can be trained to do. In your case, narcotics. There's dogs that do cell phones. There's dogs that do Pruno, which is the jailhouse alcohol. Um, there's probably a, a other ones as well. But basically the people that are attempting to conceal the contraband from you guys have all the time in the world to sit there and monitor and watch what you guys do. How do you – How do you? How, one is – one question is, how imaginative have, has there been for some of the hide locations where you've come across things? And two, um, you know, how difficult can it be at times? Um, so we'll start off with creativity. Yeah. Chapstick. Okay. The inmates are allowed to, uh, they're allowed to buy chapstick on commissary. You know, everybody knows what chapstick is. Got the tube of the, the wax in there. Well, what they'll do, and they also do the same thing with deodorant, um, is they'll roll it all the way up to where the wax is completely exposed, they'll cut it off at the base, create a void in there, put their dope in it, put the wax back on top, and then put everything back together so it looks normal. Mm -hmm. So if you as a human pick it up, roll the thing a little bit, wax comes out, you're like, wow, it's normal. Yeah. But having a dog who, you know, bionic sense of smell, mm -hmm. they've I've actually had a couple of chapstick finds uh, between my three dogs, and... It blew me out of the water the first time I found it. I, I didn't want to believe it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, so the basic, the normal stuff is like legal paperwork. So inmates are allowed to contain their uh, legal paperwork for their court purposes. And the rule of thumb is that we're not allowed to read it or go through it without the inmate being present. Okay. Well, when we take an inmate out of his cell or if he's out for day room or anything like that, it's not like their wallet. They don't, you know, put it in their pocket and walk around with it. Um, they leave it in their cell. Okay. Well, working a dog, again, super sense of smell. Inmates don't, most of the time they don't have gloves or anything like that. So there's transfer of odor and things like that. I had a dog go in. It was actually Christmas Eve. So it was a Christmas gift for me. Okay. Uh, dog went in, searching a cell. And found a gram and a half of black tar heroin inside the dude's legal mail. But we couldn't search it until the inmate was present. Uh -huh. So we had to tell the inmate, hey, my dog alerted to your stuff. We need to take you to a secure area, go through it, stuff like that. Whole time he's denying that it's not his. Sure. But every piece of paper in there has his name, his booking number, and everything else <laughs> yeah, on it. exactly. So when we went through it, you can tell... And you talk about it a lot when you're running a dog, changes in behavior. Mm -hmm. This inmate was standing cool, calm, and collected until we got to the part of his legal mail where the dope was. And all of a sudden, he kind of, you know, puckered up, if you will. Sure. And I looked over at him. He looked at me. We made eye contact. And he went, 
Oh no. <laughs> and that's where we found the dope between a couple pieces of uh, wax paper inside of his stuff. And the wax paper came from cookie wrappers. All right. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always known by being exposed to those environments, the imagination that some of these inmates have are unbelievable. The, the, the stuff huge. they can come up with is amazing. And, and the fact as a detection dog handler, you're constantly working against the people who are studying you and watching your dog all the time. So in some cases, I'm willing to bet these inmates know your dog almost as well as you do on certain aspects. They know when that dog's change of behavior is. They kind of can read because they got nothing better to do but sit there and watch you when you're working. Um, Are there things, I mean, I know they'll segregate, they'll put people out of areas at certain times while you guys do your job, but obviously there's many instances where they get to watch you work. There is. Um, So one of the things that I do is um, I take my dog along with me. We have have state-mandated security checks that we have to do hourly. Mm Mm-hmm. So first one out of the day um, is basically it's a count, wristband check, have the inmates come up to the door, verify their face with their picture on the wristband, name, and stuff like that. While I'm doing that, my dog has free reign of the day room and all the doors that are in the environment and everything like that. Um, And while he's doing that, if they're awake, obviously they're standing at the door watching him. Um, And then every hour we go through and then these guys get day room time, which is time out of their cell. So as they're doing that, I'm walking down the tier, and I just kind of let my dog to a point free range yep. to where it's he wants to go in a cell. I'm going to follow him into that cell. Okay. So as he wants to make entry into a cell, first thing I do is make sure there's no bodies in it. Sure. Um, and then I let him go in. I work an eight-foot leash. The cells are about nine feet long. Um, and I let him run around the cell. The whole time I'm doing this, they're sitting 10 feet you know, out in the day room. Yeah. And they're like, what's the dog doing? Yeah. And then you see a couple guys start talking and then you read their body language and it's like, okay, there's something in here somewhere. And then we go to sell to sell to sell. Um, if we get some, if we get onto a track of some sort where, you know, the dog has a great change of behavior bigger than anything, that's when I'll go, okay, tell my partner that's with me. Hey, lock these guys up, put them out in the yard. Uh, clear the area so I can have an in-depth search. Now I can go in and not have to worry about my surroundings. I okay. can I'm more focus on watching my dog. Yeah. Um, and then going into like inmate working locations and things like that, smaller numbers of guys, they're focused on their job. They're doing what they're doing. And don't get me wrong, they have 24 hours a day to sit down and conjure up these plans of drops. When How's the dope going to come in? How are they going to get it from point A to point B to point C? All this stuff. So I like the unannounced searches. Yes. I come in. I mean, they see my dog at wristbands in the housing unit. Sure. But if I go to a work location, they don't see me coming in. Mm -hmm. They turn a corner and all of a sudden it's, oh my gosh, there's a dog. Yeah. So having done searches like that, we have found a lot more stuff out in the open. Okay. Kind of like, I guess you can say half-hearted hidden you know, they're like, oh, I got to make sure that it stays right there so I can have a visual of it. Because mm-hmm. while they're working, that's their money that's sitting on the table. Sure. They don't want their dope to disappear. So they got to keep it visual in their in their area. So watching their body language kind of gives me a tip on where to go. And especially when you get into, you know, big industrial sized kitchens and uh, warehouse type, set, type settings. So has your have you ever seen your dog reacting to any of the other 
the inmates' body language on stuff? Has that ever occurred where obviously the dogs know us really well, but I mean, you bring up a lot of points where it's this constant chess match yeah. between you, the inmates, and your dog as a tool. And we know dogs are experts at reading our body language. I'm just curious, have you ever seen uh, King pick up on uh, other people in the environment and their body language or anything like that? Or have you noticed anything along those lines? Um, I like to call it the uh, the sprint. <laughs> when we make our way into a housing unit, yeah. if that's not a housing unit that I'm assigned to for the day or, or for however long I'm there, mm-hmm. uh, we come into the main door and you watch a couple guys and they'll dart. To their to their bunks or to their cells, mm-hmm. and then he'll come in and, and all of a sudden it's an eye track. Gotcha. And he sees those guys move, and it's like, all right, let's go see what they're doing. So as we go up, there's constant AC blowing, there's a heater blowing, depending on the time of the year. Mm-hmm. But allowing him to follow up into where all that dust has now been kicked up mm-hmm. has made his job a little bit easier. Sure. So I guess not so much reading their behavior. Yeah. It's just picking up on an action that putting the science into it and then putting his abilities into mm-hmm. it kind of, it, you know, as a team, it makes it better. Yeah, no, you're, you're bringing up what obviously the dog over enough times would use as a antecedent, you know, something that they know, okay, when I see this happens, this happens. So obviously its potential is that you, you hit that housing unit, the people scramble a little bit, the dog catches that and then gets to go search those areas where they scramble to. You know, one thing leads to another. The dog gets a location of or makes an indication to narcotic odor or whatever contraband. And it probably won't take but a few times for the dog to go, I know this game. When people run, I'm going to go there because that ends up in a yield where I get to find something and there's a game out of that. Um, You know, and it is as a detection dog handler, the environment you work in is super unique, you know. Uh, very few people that do detection dogs get to have a chance to work in an environment like that. So, uh, very, very unique conditions. Um, you know, again, an adversary that has eyes on you all the time creates a level of complexity and uh, ways that they, obviously we talked about hide stuff. What's been, that made me think of something. What's been, um, a very unique way they've masked something. I know you brought the deodorant chapstick in there. Has there been something like food related or like a heavy smell of something in an attempt to conceal the odor of whatever contraband? Um, for the most part, I would probably have to say just whatever food items they have. Okay. Um, you know, they're, you know, some of the inmates are not the smartest cookies. So they seem to think that if I hide it, under a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know, in my drawer yeah. or in my cell that he's not going to find it. Um, or if I put it up around a bowl that has a fresh soup being cooked in it, he's not going to find it. Well, that's kind of the masking that I've seen with him. Um, and it's, we've been successful. They have, we've beaten them. <laughs> so, yeah, which brings another big point. What kind of things are you doing uh, working with distracting and or proofing odors to kind of combine or combine, uh, sorry, to combat that issue. Um, so, uh, food avoidance was a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, I run a lab. We all know labs like to eat everything under the sun. Sure. So I had to separate, um, the food avoidance training from detection in itself and teach him that, you know, the food that these guys have, the food, the human food is not what you're after mm-hmm. um working on that for a little while that's kind of you know that's been successful for us 
Um, some of the other ones is just bad BO. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You have a very unique environment for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, some of these guys come in, they don't shower for days, if known weeks or months. Oh, yeah. So there's times where I'll go set up a, a training search or something and I'll take some of the dirty dude's laundry and go and put it out. Man. And, you know, and there's times where the dope is actually hidden in their laundry. Um, and that way he understands that it does come from this, but this isn't what I'm hunting the whole time. So man odor and food is pretty much my biggest battles. Wow. Yeah, no, and from being in law enforcement myself and going to the jail, local jail and dropping off my arrestee and things like that, you're right. That's one of the things that stands out, and most cops will say the same thing. Uh, the odor in those environments, the human odor is, oh, God, <laughs> it is some of the worst things you can deal with. And yet this dog has to work through that level of adversity and locate in, in all these cases a, a gram or two, if that sometimes. This isn't kilos. This isn't. I think his last one was literally a booger of black tar heroin wow. hidden under a rug behind a bunk that was in there. The rug's been in there since probably 1985. Yeah. Wow. And a, a plastic spoon with a little bit of heroin on it that they were starting to uh, doctor up. Okay. That, that right there you know, a flake, like a rice crispy yeah. flake. So that means you work on thresholds. So what are techniques that you use to get your dog used to those low thresholds of odor? Um, so working low thresholds of odor. Um, one of the ones that I, I really like to use is Wattman paper. Yep. Um, I'll marinate it in, you know, whatever flavors I have and tear off, you know, the smallest of tabs and just put it in a crack. You know, if I'm, uh, you know, working outside or something like that, I'll put on the loading dock. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm in a building that has, you know, good uh, door seams or something like that, I'll throw it in there. Um, the other one I like to use is paper or not paper clips, but uh, toothpicks. Mm -hmm. um, those fit in cracks really well. Um, and then all the way up to the biggest amount that I can produce and use all the variations in the middle. So what's the largest find you've had? Oh, my goodness. Uh, eight grams of weed. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, which is, you know, in the normal realm of a law enforcement officer. That was in a ball of <laughs> smokeless tobacco. Wow. About See? the size of a softball. Dang. So, again, either your average police officer working a dope dog eight grams is not even of marijuana, almost not even worth doing, you know, even that's a ticket nowadays. Yeah. I'll say not even a ticket. It's yeah, legal. Yeah. In, in most cases. Yeah. Uh, but even back in when I was working a cop, eight grams, I didn't even, that wasn't even worth the, my time of a traffic stop. So it, it clearly shows in the environment that you work in, you're in very tough conditions with extreme levels of distracting and proofing odors with very low threshold of odor for target. Yeah. So you have mass odors of everything non-target and very little odor of target, yet your dog is proficient. Now, of course, we never know what we don't find. Right. But with that said, the dogs are there and they're successful. You know, they, someone not getting even that small amount of narcotics is frustrating in an environment like that. So you're, again, this chess game that you guys have between uh, corrections officers and inmates, you know, yeah, 
each side wins battles at times, but you know, you have a tool in your hands with that dog that gives you an advantage to kind of keep things in line. Now, obviously most of the listeners are going to wonder, okay, how are the narcotics introduced into the uh, correctional <laughs> facility? I was waiting for that. Question. Yeah, I knew you were, so I had to bring it up. <laughs> what, what is what would you say based on your training experience has been the number one? The you know, number one cause for this, it, and there's there's many different terms for it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of one of my favorite ones is uh, hooping it. Okay, yeah. Uh, the other one is the prison wallet, um, and. The most common is keystring. Mm-hmm. So, in their rectum. Yep. They they these guys are superstars at it. Oh yeah. I mean, I've heard stories of handcuffed individuals plugging it up, sitting in the back of a cop car because it wasn't found on an initial pat search. Sure. Um, all the way to, hey, there. You know, the guy just came in. He handed off his dope to Johnny, who's already been in there. Johnny knows he's going to go to another housing unit or another facility. So inmate A has to pay inmate B. Well, Johnny is the transport guy. Gotcha. So they'll keister it to get to point A back and forth. Um, one of the ways that we've started combating that is we have x-ray machines. Mm-hmm. So the inmate comes into intake, has a fresh arrest, stands on this scanner. We also scan inmates periodically throughout any, uh, any activities during the day. Yeah. Um, but it's a thorough x-ray. Yeah. I mean, you can tell the anomalies that are in there. Um, and I'll be honest, when that machine came about, my fine numbers went down. Yeah, I bet they did. Yeah. Because <laughs> now, you know, the, you had a better mousetrap now. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they've even upped that machine to the, you know, 2.0, if you will. Uh-huh. And it's even better now. Yeah. Um, but uh, that way, the other is... Um, one of the most creative ways that I've seen, mm-hmm. inmates are allowed to get um, prescription glasses. Okay. While they're in custody, they can have them brought into them. And it was new to us. They took a frame from the eyeglasses and opened it up and put heroin in there, powder her- powdered heroin. Wow. In the, uh, frame. the, the ears, the frames of it, mm-hmm. uh, made it into the tank. One of the snitches came forward. Um, at the time, my sergeant's dog was the one that found those glasses. And now that's a priority sniff daily uh-huh. is eyeglasses when they come in or any other medical apparatus that gets brought in. Sure. We had a guy try to smuggle weed in in a CPAP machine. Yeah. Um, it didn't make it past the front counter because the lady <laughs> at the front counter was like, why does it smell like weed? Yeah. So it didn't make it past okay. them. But those are a couple of the creative ways of getting it in. Yeah. Other than, you know, cracking a tennis ball in half or cutting a hole in it and throwing it over the fence. Okay. Um, back when we opened up our newest jail... It's right next to the I-80. Oh, okay. And guys would just pull up, hawk over a bunch, and tobacco, weed, dope, whatever it was, and move on. And then the guys would walk to work. And yep. they'd see it. Hey, what's that bag right there? Ooh, hey, winner. Yeah. <laughs> Ford Canine Training and Consulting. Ford Canine has a number of different seminars where I come to you and do courses such as canine cognition testing, detection using cognition, canine integration with tactical operations, the science of E, which is a class based on the understanding of remote callers and how to best utilize them, police canine decoy training, or 
if you need me to come out and consult or do certifications under CNCA and PCA, National Police Canine Association, or even California Post. If you need any of these and more, go to my website, www.fordfordk9.com. On my website are a number of different classes and formats, as well as the ability to contact me and schedule phone or video consulting with or about your canine or your canine program. That phone number is 702-706-DOGS, D-O-G-S. Contact me either via email, Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at Ford, F-O-R-D, K-Number-9.com, to schedule an appointment or a seminar, and I look forward to hearing from you. Georgia Police Canine Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to help canine units. They do this by sometimes providing equipment that might be needed for a canine unit. Maybe it's training, finding a seminar that they fund to get a unit exposure to some training needs that they don't get normally through the routine monthly training. They also provide funds for retired canines who no longer have the support from their agency for the care as they get older. Georgia Police Canine Foundation is here for you, but they're also looking for donations to help this great mission and to help canine programs from around the United States. So if you're looking to help, you want to make a donation, go to www.gapoliceknumber9foundation.org. Again, that website is www.gapoliceknumber9foundation.org. Are you a canine handler in the West or Northwest United States? and you're looking for a different or a new canine conference to go to, then I would look at the Pacific Northwest Canine Conference. This is going to be held May 18th to the 22nd in Walla Walla, Washington. I have been at the Pacific Northwest Canine Conference now uh, more than a few times, and it is a conference where you get classroom as well as multiple working dog stations Uh, throughout those days Um, it keeps you busy you're not just sitting in a classroom if you are a person who says okay I want some classroom then I want to go out and actually uh, apply some of the things that the instructors talk about then the Pacific Northwest Canine Conference is a great one to attend Uh, last year they had the NYPD Transit Bureau bomb dog teams there Uh, the instructors and the admin from that program put on a excellent class Then they went out and did scenarios from lessons learned that they've been through with the NYPD. It was uh, very eye-opening to say the least. Um, This conference is for narcotic and explosive detection dog handlers to include firearms detection dog handlers. For information to sign up and register, go to pnwk9.org. That is P as in Paul, N as in November, W is in whiskey, K is in kilo, nine, the number nine.org. So PNWK9.org. Uh, sign up for the conference. Um, again, those dates are May 18th to the 22nd, and it's going to be in Walla Walla, Washington.
Are you looking for a good three-day or a weekend type seminar? Then check out the Sniff and Bite seminars. Sniff and Bite seminars are ones where we spend a day and a half doing detection and a day and a half doing bite work slash patrol work, depending on what you do. So whether you're a civilian that does sport or you are a law enforcement officer working your dog as a either dual purpose dog or even single purpose dog, check out the Sniff and Bite seminars. I just conducted one uh, a few weeks ago in Ocala, Florida with Carlos Ramirez. And everybody that went through that seminar was challenged in one way or another, whether it be detection or on the patrol side of things, the bite work side of things. Uh, a few of the officers got to kind of see some uh, levels of decoy resistance that they had not encountered probably ever. Every sniff and bite seminar is designed to challenge you, but also enhance your education as to the hows and the whys. And then we go out and actually do it. The next sniff and bite seminar is going to be held here in Las Vegas at Silver State Canine. Carlos Ramirez is going to come to Las Vegas. We are going to do our three-day seminar here, and we're going to add a new component. We're going to add some decoy training and education. So if you want to step up your game as a decoy, then make sure you show up for the sniff and bite seminar in Las Vegas. Detection-wise, we are going to push some limits there as well. You have my playground at Set City Las Vegas with all the tools I have on my home turf. So if you want to come and push yourself detection-wise, make sure you sign up for that seminar. The dates for that seminar, February 28th, 29th, and March 1st. Go to SilverStateCanine.com, go to the calendar, go to those dates, click on that, and register. The next Sniff and Bite seminar will be held in Tennessee with Justin Rigney. I will go out there. That'll be held in May. Go to CanineServicesUnlimited.com. Contact Justin to sign up for that one. On a side note, if you do not know Carlos Ramirez, Carlos Ramirez is a fantastic trainer and an excellent decoy. If you get a chance, go check out his website, carlosramirezk9.com. That's Ramirez spelled R-A-M-I-R-E-Z and then K9.com. So carlosramirezk9.com. Go check him out and I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's obviously a highly challenging environment. Um, and the fact that you've done it now, you said this is your third dog working in an environment like that. So this has given you a good foundation to kind of go into what you do now as a hobby slash, I would say, uh, second job. Um, <laughs> yeah, more or so, less. yeah. <laughs> so you got into kind of give the listeners how you got into nose work and your journey along that way to where you're at now. Uh, so being that I was a canine handler, um, I, I got question or asked by our nonprofit, um, Foothills Canine at the time. And she asked if I'd be interested in judging these, these, uh, dog trials. I asked her, Hey, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. What are these dog trials? And she's like, nose work. Like, okay, you gotta give me more than that. (laughs) Like build me in. So she explained what it was and I go, you know what? I'll give it a shot. So I went out to my first one now, six plus years ago. Um, and absolutely fell in love with it. When we're canine handlers, we get breed specific. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Mouse, shepherds, labs, you mm-hmm. know, the, 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 the main four. Yeah. 
I got in my first trial as a judge, judging uh, Nosework 1 in a classroom, first grade classroom. Now imagine the distractions that are in a first grade classroom. Oh, yeah. Right? You got everything in there. Yeah, food, animal crackers, crayons, markers, you name it. Yeah, everything. Yeah, Yeah. and funk. (laughs) Dirty diapers. Yeah, (laughs) and I'm watching this dachshund come in named Pickles. (laughs) And it was... uh, a two and a half, no, I'm sorry, a three and a half minute search. The odor was directly across the room. This dog showed up to the line no more than four inches off the ground from front to back. Mm-hmm. But he was like two feet long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I looked down, I'm like, what's this guy going to do? <laughs> he, she lets him go, 27 seconds. Darts across the classroom, finds a scent cone, works his way, comes up the chair like a cobra. Hits the odor, comes back down to all fours, and turns and looks at her. I was like, Holy I was flabbergasted. God. Like yeah. I forgot to say yes. <laughs> she said alert, and I'm all, I'm vapor locked. I'm like, yeah. this, yes, yeah. <laughs> so we're not used to seeing dogs like this do right. that well. Yeah. So you know that's how I got into it, and then I, I, that dog hooked me on my first trial. So then at the end of that trial, nobody told me that I had to do public speaking. <laughs> so at the end of the trial, they do a debrief, mm-hmm. right? So if you judge, you know, uh, whatever category you judge, you have to break it down for the for the, the handlers. Mm-hmm. So I go, okay, so I do. Well, I didn't realize how much of a nerd, if you will, about detection I was okay. until then because it was like the public speaking fear just went out the window and knowledge started coming out and, you know, what's going on with the searches and how they're working and stuff like that. And so it got to a point throughout the years where at the end of the debrief, they're telling me, hey, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's what we're giving you. So I go, okay. Well, (laughs) a lot of the ladies started coming up, a lot of the handlers. They're like, hey, have you ever thought of teaching? Have you ever thought of teaching? I'm like, no, no, I'm good. I work. I'll do the trials. I'm good. Well, yeah, it kind of unfolded a little bit, and now I'm teaching. Yeah. (laughs) So that's how I got into the whole nose work thing. And now you actually do weekly class. You, you turn. I remember when I first talked to you, you were just kind of doing one day. It was like, oh, I'm going to dedicate my Fridays to helping out some locals. <laughs> now, you know, I, I, I follow you on your social media. You're doing it at least every day you have off. Yeah. Um, you have like this team, you know, canine first uh, group. They are pulling in ribbons constantly um, at the, all these different events they're going to. It's all different types of breeds. What do you think now that you've done the nose work stuff, what has that taught you as a detection dog trainer? Patience. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and the reason I say patience being number one is some of these dogs that come out, they don't have drive. Yep. They're, you know, they're a pet. Mm-hmm. They went from, you know, okay, we're just going to hang out in the house. And then the doctor tells them, Hey, you need to get some exercise. Well, walking around with my dog. Yeah. Okay, let's do a sport. So they come out. Handler knows absolutely nothing about it. So there's patience on teaching the handler portion. Mm-hmm. Then there's patience on getting the dog to do it. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I've learned is that it's not just certain breeds. It's If they got a nose, they can do it. Sure. I mean, whether it's inverted like a bulldog mm-hmm. or if it is straight up a cone at the end of their face like a greyhound. Yep. I mean, they can do it. Yeah. Like you said – 
you know, for me, it was the same kind of thing. I would obviously both of us came from the professional working dog world and we were used to the dogs that we had, which were highly motivated, selected to do these kind of things. And then to get to be around dogs that um, we would have never thought would do virtually in principle, the same things that we do with our dogs, which is amazing. So we then had to, it opened my eyes, kind of what you said, which is if they have a nose and I know how to properly communicate what I want, they can search and locate mm-hmm. and lastly indicate they found what I what we've trained them to do. Just the same as a high-speed Malinois. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I tell you what, the one thing that I took away too, working with the, the people that do the sport as compared to professionals, uh, a lot of the sport people were more hands-off with their dogs, which was yeah. one of the main things that we preach to professionals, which is, hey, stay in the dog's way, let the dog work. They did it naturally. Um, they, they, you know, there are still significant differences and things like that, but um, without a doubt, it taught me the power of how important it is to know your dog. Oh, big time. Because obviously many of these dogs that are pets live with the people all the time, whereas the working dog world sometimes, you know, uh, handlers when they get home, the dog's kenneled or separated from them, so on and so forth. Um, but that really knowing your dog, even with dogs, was super you know, in comparison to the professional dog, lower motivation, mm-hmm. they could still easily read when their dog was on odor. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that was pretty powerful. Um, in some cases, I wanted professionals to watch the, the hobbyist and how they want oh, their dogs time. so big they can pick up some points from that. Um, so now that you've done the, the nose work thing and you've been out helping people, what would you say are the common things that nose work uh, or scent work people struggle with and that they strive to improve on? What are the things that you work on with them? Uh, like a common theme that you're constantly working with clients. Um, pretty much the biggest thing is reading their dog and understanding how the dog works through a scent cone um, to source. That would pretty much be, you know, the, the biggest thing that we do on a regular basis is pointing out to them, you know, okay, when the dog gets into odor, how the dog, you know, brackets or works a scent cone, mm-hmm. and then how does how to how to read your dog and understand the final indication that the dog throws at you. Yep. Um, and a lot of them, the dog didn't have a final. Mm-hmm. It, it was just one solid change in behavior from first time in scent to source. Yeah. So having teach having you know one of the things that a lot of them want is that readable indication. Yep. Whether it's a focused alert, a sit, a down, mm-hmm. combo of the of two, yeah. you know things like that. So that's pretty much most that we work on. And then the other is building uh, odor recognition in the dog. Like they get stagnant on a certain amount. Okay, or, excuse me, a certain amount. Yeah. And then when I play with different variations of odor, you can see where the confusion sets in with the dog. Like if I go high with a, with a grand amount of odor, the dog kind of, hey, what is yeah. that? And then they have to learn, okay, this I have to work through this to where using a very little bit amount of odor to where the dog is like missing it. Mm-hmm. And then having to teach them, okay, mm-hmm. this is a very small amount. Yeah. And then working in higher increments to reach different variations of odor so the dog understands, you know, it's not always going to be super uh, available to them. Mm-hmm. It might be hidden to where the odor is not coming out the way they want it to come out. Sure. To where, you know, the amount of it's not all there. So. What are, so on that, you, like you bring up, uh, one of the main things you work on is 
a better or a more readable indication to odor. What are some things that you do to help people in the sport of nose work with their odor indications with their dogs? Um, I introduce them to markers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and usually when I bring it up, they, they kind of look at me kind of crazy mm-hmm. um, because they've never heard of it before. Sure. And then within, you know, one session, they're seeing this, you know, bold print coming from their dog saying, hey, I found it. Mm-hmm. And they're right there. They're like, I'm in. I want to continue this and build, you know, what my dog is already doing in just this hour that we've been together. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they love it. So what, what have you seen uh, with markers? What was it that um, kind of sold you on it? Because this is how we connected initially. Uh, what sold me was clarity. That was a big thing for me. Um, I mean, a lot of it was, you know, I was raised in the, in the era of, you know, you got to feed your dog within a couple seconds. You got to, you know, got to outsmart the dog. Mm-hmm. He's got, the odor's got to come over, the, the reward's got to come from source, which you got to fastball it over the top of his head, <laughs> you know, and everything that I tried growing up was frustrating. And then um, started looking up stuff, going to, going to conferences, seeing what's new out there. You know, what's, what's evolving? Mm-hmm. Where, where can we go from this that will stop me from just getting pissed off, basically? Sure, yeah. And I found the markers. Started reading about it. Um, my wife makes a joke when I get into something, it's two feet. <laughs> I jump in with two feet. There's yep. no turning back at that point. And uh-huh. that's pretty much what I did with it. Um, I actually got to a point where I, I brought a clicker out to my canine unit training, mm-hmm. and everybody laughed at me. Oh, I bet. They're like, what's that? This isn't pet training. Yeah. We're not, you're a Girl Scout. Get out of here. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, really. Give it a, give it a chance. And, you know, everybody was cool about it. Sure. You know, cops are, everybody jabs at each other. Yeah. And now that's all how all our dogs are trained. So even, so your foray came into it professionally and now your whole unit. And I think pretty much every unit you train with, everybody's on markers. Yeah. Um, now, do you guys only use clicker? Do you guys use a verbal marker? What do you guys typically do? Uh, so we start off with the clicker mm-hmm. um, because it's quick and clear. And over time, we teach the handler timing and how to throw his his verbal marker out there. And with using the clicker at the beginning, it clears up the dog's confusion. Correct. To where they're sitting there, you know, and the secondary is the release. They're anticipating that release. So they're not turning around looking at us. Mm-hmm. They're focused at the odor. And now the handler's like, all I got to do is just say a word. Yep. I'm like, yeah, just say good. Like yep. a high-pitched 10-year-old. Yep. yep. <laughs> you know, and they do it. And boom, the dog rockets off and comes back and gets a tug. And half the time, they're not even ready for the quickness. Sure. So they get, you know, they get their thumb hit or whatever. And they're <laughs> like, oh, he got me. I'm like, you're fine, dude. Tug him up, play with him. Mm-hmm. And then we'll repeat it. And then it turns into a verbal. Because in operation, we're not going to walk around with a clicker in our hand. No, yeah, and that was the thing that, you know, I explain to people when I teach the classes is, you know, um, in the beginning steps, I use the clicker because it's repetition, it's consistent, it um, has that speed and clarity. Uh, However, let's say in my first session, I'm, you know, have three or four reps. So it's click, reward, click, reward, click, reward, but then my very last rep, I'll say, the verbal marker, which I'll go free, and then the dog gets the toy or the highest value item I can give it. Mm. 
So I'm able to incorporate both from the beginning. And uh, that allows, like you bring up later on, when I know whoever I'm training or myself, you don't have to have an extra item on you. Yeah. You have it with you. It's your voice. Um, you know, and there will be the typical arguments that come from those that uh, the mechanical device is consistent. And I 100% agree. Um, and I get the value in that. I also can say, you know what? And I've done this with numerous dogs, um, even dogs who I wasn't the one whose voice is used as the verbal marker. I can do it, and the dog still reacts. Yeah. So, um, you know, without a doubt, uh, pluses and minuses for both. Um, but the most important feature is there we're using a marker on purpose. Mm-hmm. And I always tell handlers, you got to hear me say it today in class. Whether you like it or not, you have markers built into your detection work. You have markers that you didn't do by design, um, such as like you brought up was if I have to pay at source means I have to not be in my dog's sight. So I have to get in behind my dog or step behind my dog and throw that item in there. And don't think for a second that's not a marker to the dog of what's going to happen next. So, or those that do a leash pull or this, that, or the other, these, these different things that we do that are unintentional markers that are still markers. So yeah, I, I try to educate where use a marker that you created on purpose for that design, not the ones you do by accident. Cause the ones you do by accident, unfortunately aren't always consistent, which in there turns into the dog trying to guess what's going to happen. And then you have that, you go down that wormhole, uh, where, it's cool to hear someone like you who's had your time working with a dog in a unique environment uh, evolve and start saying, okay, there's something to this psychology and science stuff, um, and then applied it professionally, and then, you know, for in your case, shared it with those that it do as a hobby. Uh, how has the reception, you, you kind of covered it, but would you say, or I say it this way, who's more receptive to the use of the markers? Was it the professionals or the, the sport people? That answer is twofold. Uh, so with the professionals, it was once they understood what we were doing, it wasn't they just gave, you know, gave into it right away. Mm-hmm. It was, okay, what, how? How does this work? Like give me the end game and everything in the middle before we start this. And then on the, the hobby side, the uh, I explained it to them or I, I brought it up mm-hmm. and – Instantly, they were like, is, is it going to help me read my dog? Yeah. And I said, yes. And they were like, let's go. Yeah. So they were more apt to jump right in to where the professional side was a little hesitant. Um, but then when I explained to them, like, dude, when you do obedience, you use it right there. You know, you're marking it with a good or a yes or okay or, you know, free or whatever you're using. It's the same aspect. Just roll it over to detection. Yeah. And then they were like, oh. All right, let's give it a go. Exactly. <laughs> or I'll use the analogy with everybody is, okay, when you tell your dog no or fooey, what does your dog expect to have happen next? Well, they all go a correction. Okay, so that's a marker. So I, if you're willing to use it in a compulsive or a correction way, why aren't you willing to use it in a positive communication way? And then mm-hmm. that kind of begins to crack open the mind a little bit and hear they'll, they'll turn their ears on and, and willing to listen a little bit more. Um, and you're right. I've seen the same thing. Professionally, we tend to – we're resistant to change mm-hmm. um, where as a civilian, you're more open to change, especially if it helps you get results. Yeah. And in this case for them, the results means you know 
winning or trophies or ribbons, etc., that motivation to be successful with your dog. Uh, not that as a, us as professionals don't want that too. We want success. We just sometimes I think are happy with status quo. Hey, it's working for me. I don't feel like changing. I'm good with that. Right. Um, and, and like I tell everybody, I'm not saying the other things don't work. There's just efficiency in doing things a certain way and using something based on psychology. The old thing was when I asked handlers, what were you told? Uh, the time frame was when you had to reward a dog from doing a correct behavior. And of course, the average answer is a second to a half second, et cetera. Okay, good. So we agree that it means it needs to be fast. With that said, what is faster? A audible signal traveling at the speed of sound or you attempting to chuck your ball or deliver food or what have you to the dog, depending on where it's at from you, to source. Mm-hmm. So, and in that distance, other things happen that still tell the dog rewards imminent anyway. Yep. So by showing the efficiency of something like that, you're able to kind of get your point across. And then those that embrace it, like you brought up that client the first time they start seeing it, within a couple sessions or a rep or however it is, you can quickly see results. And that's an important thing. So, um, you know, everything evolves, you know, and, and our career field is evolving a lot in detection dogs, um, sometimes with a little bit of push from science or legal, yeah. things like that. Um, in the hobbyist world, there's a great uh, willingness to try things. The cool thing that I've learned, and tell me if you see it too, within the uh, uh, sport world is there's a lot of crossover from other sports. So Big time. some that do agility, some that do rally, all these different things. And in those aspects, they're already used to using markers or clickers and things like that. So those clients I've come across were like, oh, my gosh, thank goodness. Because I, I didn't know I could use that over right. here in this. Yeah. And then they show it to them or you show them <laughs> when to use it. And they and it catches fire like crazy then oh, with, with them because they already had the concept down of timing. Uh, so they go through it pretty well. So I want to bring up a, a question that comes up uh, a lot of times when uh, whether no matter what side of defense it is, sport or, or a professional. Um, well, what happens if I mark at the wrong time or what happens if I mark for the wrong thing? How do you address people like that? Uh, pretty much I explained to them, uh, you know, if, if you only do it once or twice, it's not really that big of a deal. If you do it, you know, over and over and over and you, and you set that, that repetition into their head, then you're teaching them something wrong. Mm-hmm. But if it's only once or twice, you're not going to hurt anything. Just back yourself up, make sure you do it right the next time. And then the next time is right, right, right. And right. And then the, that one time that you messed up as a human, when the dog was actually right, it'll it'll all work itself out. Yeah, and you got to see my new lecture where I purposely show when I mess up. Right. right. There's that video I show where my typing was off right when my dog scratches uh, the location. I had a dog like that the other night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my dog scratches right when I mark him. So, of course, the very next rep, he comes in and he scratches multiple times. And I just have to let him realize it doesn't work, and I only end up yeah. marking when he actually stops doing that and focuses again, and I mark that. And the very next rep after that, he's back to being solid on his indication. So, you know, sometimes there comes in this uh, abnormal fear of, oh, my gosh, what if I do this at the wrong time? Uh, what happens if I make a mistake? It's not the end of the world. In fact, it's the easiest thing to undo mm-hmm. because time. It, it's a timing thing. So all you got to do is adjust your timing and only signal at the right moment where you have the desired behavior you're looking for. So with that said, with 
you know, one of those being the marketing being a big phase for both professional and nose work. Um, you've seen significant progress with dogs using that. Oh, yeah. Um, what's, a, what's another thing that you've seen um, that enhances a team? So whether it be, and I'll throw out some ideas for you, and you let me know what you think is uh, an important one. So searches that are blind to the handler. Those are very important. Blank searches that are also unknown to the handler. Um, time duration searches. So searching longer than, let's say, the typical two to three minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we both agree all those are important, but uh, I'll break it off into the sport world first. What out of those three have been a significant game changer or a help to the handlers? Um, I'd probably say the blank searches okay. have been uh, a big moneymaker for them. Mm-hmm. And when I say moneymaker, it makes them think. Yeah, it, they go in there and they're you know it's taught them not to cue their dogs. You know, once you know the the honeymoon phase of that search is over, the first minute or so, freakout starts to hit into the handler's head, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden that freakout goes right down the leash. Dog starts turning around, starting to stare at them. Hey, what are we doing? The handler's starting to run around in some weird directions, circles, triangles, trying to figure out where she's got to go or where they got to come, where they've been. Uh, and they build their confidence with those blank searches. Yeah. Because the biggest thing is, is how do I read my dog? Mm-hmm. Right? That's what they. That's a lot of the things I get from them is I can't read my dog. Help me read my dog. Yep. So throwing them into a blank, right? Because, and I learned this from you, <laughs> just because it's training. I'll tell the story in a second. Go on. <laughs> just because it's training uh-huh. doesn't mean there, there's going to be odor out there. Yep. Um, so... Caught them in that mindset of every time we go to training, there's odor out. Mm-hmm. So my dog should find something every time they search. Mm-hmm. So throwing that blank out to them, um, some were better than others. Some were worse than others. Um, you know, it was how long do they go until their brain starts telling their body, you need to react. And then once they start to react, now the dog's reacting to them. Yep. Because it's that weird body language that the dog's like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> and then they, you know, or they sniff something, and then all of a sudden they plant their feet. What do you got, buddy? Yep. You know, show me. Mm-hmm. And then the falses start. But doing more and more blank searches, even in the harsh public places of Home Depot, where there's industrial odor that's there, environmental odor that's there, the dogs go and sniff and Nobody's talking their dogs into stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. They're having that confidence to go, okay, um, this is blank. Okay, cool. You've been here for two and a half minutes. What? No kidding. So that's the biggest out of those three is the blanks. Yeah. And so to, to give the listeners the story of how what I did to Chris <laughs> was at the uh, Western States Conference that I was at a number of years ago, uh, myself and Jeff Meyer from uh, Denver Police Department and Hits Canine, we were given a vehicle area to use for the search. And luckily enough, the vehicles they had given us had never been used for any kind of detection training. So I decided to, I said to Jeff, you know what? I'm pretty sure everybody coming to this station is expecting to find something. Yep, so we were. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you take one car and set it up as a traffic stop? kind of search. I'll take the remaining seven cars. They're left as they are. I won't even ever walk into that area. And then I'll call the first dog team over in about a half hour because, of course, they're expected. We're setting this area up. So 
sure enough, called over the first dog handler. And to speed the story up, basically out of 30 dog teams, 28 teams called indication in any number of random locations throughout that those seven cars. Um, what was a unique quality was dogs that trained in the same unit showed interest in the same spots. So let's just say dog number five was from agency A, and then dog number 10 was also from agency A, and dog number 14 was from agency A. Those three dogs, even though they weren't running in sequential order, all showed interest in the same general spot, which tells you the dogs definitely know each other's smells. Now, out of those 28 teams that called something, I think, if I remember correctly, maybe one or two, maybe two, actually did an indication. All the other calls were just guys going, um, my dog's showing interest in the back of this vehicle here. And I'd ask him, are you calling an alert or is this just an interest thing? Let me know. And of course, they'd cave to the pressure of my, my acting skills of like, tell me what you got. You know, I'd be like all dead serious with them. And then they you would tell them here. You're asking me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> am I getting in the car? Or am I not getting in the car? Come on, officer. Let me know. You know, or my <laughs> joke I always use now. I steal this from, of course, from Andy Wyman. We either are pregnant or not pregnant. There is no kind of pregnant. So let me know. Are we searching this car or not? And of course, they fold under pressure. Yes, you're good. Get in the car. And I wanted to demonstrate to them the importance of those blank searches. And the dogs were good. The dogs just. Uh, you know, there's some things that happened, you know, by car number four, uh, when there had been no interest by the dogs, handlers started freaking out internally going, oh my gosh, what's going on? I've searched four cars. I've got no interest, no nothing. And the pace <laughs> of the handlers went from searching a car pretty quickly to by car number four, they're going much slower. And by car number six, they're like, like baby walking around a car like presenting every three inches going, come on, dog, why aren't you indicating? We, we can't have missed something here. And what it opened their mind at years ago was you needed to incorporate uh, these blank searches in there and do it where it's unexpected. And because they came into it with a mindset of, I'm going to find something. And they trusted their dogs, but they didn't trust their dogs too because they hadn't been put in that situation prior to that point. Yep. And of course, uh, I'll let you kind of speak to it from your point of view, but what were you feeling <laughs> as that went down? And then, you know, you can kind of read, you know, let listeners know what you said to me after it was all over done with. Um, so as I was going through that, um, he points out, Hey, there's seven cars right there. I go, Oh, seven cars. It's cake. We do high school parking lots. <laughs> no issue. So we go in, we start and first car, nothing. Second car, I think we had, it was the driver's rear tail light or something. And he goes into a change of behavior, the dog does. And then all of a sudden I go into my change of behavior. And <laughs> this is where I learned what cueing means. <laughs> and uh, we cued each other back and forth until he sat. And I put my hand up and I looked over the, the line of the cars. And Cameron just pauses for a minute and, and gives me that look of no. <laughs> and i'm like uh, okay so we keep going i think at the end of that search i think i had five non-productive <laughs> alerts or indications 
And the last car out of that was a Ford Ranger pickup truck. Wow. You remember everything. I do. And yeah. I'll tell you why I do in a minute. Okay. Uh, you didn't give me PTSD or anything. You actually taught me something. And uh, so that Ford Ranger, I'm like, oh, it's the last car. There's got to be something on this last car. I searched not every three inches, every half inch. Yeah, that's true. Not only backwards and forwards, but north and south. Mm-hmm. I mean, we went everywhere. I put my dog under that car to check the drive, the, the drive shaft, the whole nine yards. We were doing everything. I put the tailgate down. I sniffed every edge there was. And he showed interest to the uh, diamond-plated toolbox on the back of the truck. Okay, yeah, I remember that now. And I worked my life off. Because you're thinking in your mind, that's where it's at. There's a diamond-plated toolbox in the back of the truck. It's got to be there. It's got to be there. The dog did not indicate on that box. Mm -hmm. And I walked away, and I gave up. I'm like, all right, dude, I'm done. Let's go. That part I remember. I remember you being, like, mentally done. Yeah. I was mentally done, and when I started this search, there was no other cops around. I get done with this search. I turn around. There is a horseshoe of 17 cops <laughs> standing around Cameron, and I walk up, and Cameron goes, failed. <laughs> I go, what? I was. there's nothing out there? He goes, no, dude, that was blank. And then I got uh, a lot of encouraging words on queuing, uh, talking my dog into stuff, um, working around other dog odors, and aid placement. And I don't remember the exact words you used, but it was like, I thought I was talking to my dad. My dad's a retired drill instructor. <laughs> and I thought that I was talking to my dad again. And I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, and I put my dog up, and I came back. I, what, I spent like another four hours there? Oh, yeah. you you. And then even the next day, you came back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, I got to watch this. Yeah. So I went back. Um, and then uh, even Jeff got me on the other the other high. Yeah. Uh, car pulled over to the side of a building on top of a bark, uh, a bark patch. Um, and the dope was in a brown bag three oh. feet off of the, the rear driver's tire. Yep. We're searching around the car, and my dog keeps going over to this side. And I'm like, get over here. We're searching a car. Quit searching the trash on the side of the road, yeah. dog. I'm like, leave it alone. And then I had to go through it again with Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, so for the listeners, so the traffic stop was set up where there was no odor actually on the car. We simulated somebody who had you know, placed their narcotics in like a uh, McDonald's bag and tossed it out the window. So it looks like there's road trash. And we wanted to see if the handlers would actually trust the dog that's telling them the odor's over here, not on the thing that you think it's in, which is the car, and it's on the ground a few feet away because, of course, no criminals will ever try to toss something out the window when you're not paying attention or anything like that. Uh, And we wanted the handlers to really understand that the whole area around the car, on the ground, the car itself, all of that is in play. Uh, But we get tunnel vision. And whether you are a professional or you're a, a, a sport dog handler, we all get tunnel vision, and we mm-hmm. all get stuck on a target in our head and think this has to be it. Um, and the lesson that I was trying to show everybody in my problem was, you know, again, what you think affects the outcome. So come into every search as my dog better convince me there's odor here. Otherwise, there's no odor here. And that has helped me tenfold in working in the jail environment that I work in because it mm-hmm. was, you know, Oh, there's there's got to be dope in here. Yeah, it's jail. Yeah, then kick back, let him do his thing, 
and it's made us more successful than my first mindset. <laughs> sure. And, and, and you know, uh, obviously, I'll, I'll use sport again. In the sport world, they go into it knowing there's going to be odor there, especially on the entry levels, and that's fine. Uh, as they progress, there is now more introduction of blank searches. Yep. So you have to start doing that. And if you want to be best prepared, uh, you need to do more blank searches early on. And again, in the lectures that I go through and the lectures of others out there, we are all kind of preaching the same thing. Whether you're professional or sport, you need to introduce blank searches in the beginning too. Yep. Once a dog knows at least one odor, you can start showing the dog how to cope with a search that has no odor present. Uh, but we are creatures of habit ourselves. We always want to put odor out because we want to see our dog find something. We, yep. It's fun to watch them locate odor and indicate to it. It's all about success. Yeah. So, <laughs> exactly. So, and, and what we don't realize, there's equal success when my dog performs as trained and tells me there's nothing here. Yep. It's just not as sexy because I didn't get to see a cool little stare right. or a point or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, as we wrap this up kind of thing is we want handlers to understand clear communication. Take yourself and your bias out of the equation as much as possible and go into your searches going, you know what? I don't believe there's something here, but dog, if you tell me it's here, yep. then I'll go with it. You can't walk into it mentally going, oh, yeah, I just have to find it. It's here. I just have to find it. And too many handlers walk into a search with that mindset of I know it's here. My dog will tell me, but all we have to do is find it, and mm -hmm. that's not the case. Go into it going, there's nothing here, and this little four-legged friend better be damn convincing <laughs> that there's something here. So so now you're located in Northern California, right? Yes. So how do people find you? How do people reach you? Um, on Instagram, I am uh, at Canine First Detection Training. Spell first because you have it spelled uniquely. Uh, okay, F U R S T. Yeah, um, that actually is my first my first canine partner's name, and uh, in German it's Prince. Mm -hmm. um, and now I have a king. Yeah, I noticed <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, Instagram is at uh, canine first underscore detection underscore training. Um, my Facebook is uh, canine first or Chris Oliver, mm -hmm. um, and then. K9first.com, a uh, little website out there with some information on it. So it's K9first.com. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and we'll put those links in the show notes. Now, you offer seminars, workshops. I know you've come down to me and Pete or to under Pete's uh, Canine Sensible or the, sorry, the Sensible Canine yeah. uh, conferences. Um, you, I know you've done, done some stuff on your own. Um, what are some of the you've even come me and you've worked together we did a one called uh, canine search strategies in Las Vegas and that was a lot of fun what are uh, some of the other topics that you typically get asked to cover that, you're, that you can go out there and cover for people um, uh, let's see so uh, using the clicker yep. um, talking about markers and stuff like that that's been I've done a few of those um, the other ones is um, imprinting odor um, and then I think those are pretty much the, the ones you get most, the main topics. Yeah. yeah. And then there's some, you know, just, you know, Hey, come out and hang out with us for a day and help us out. And if get you see something, talk about it, yeah. you know, point some stuff out. What can we work on? Kind of coaching, I guess you can say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you are also a CNCA certifying official. 
So any of those uh, programs out there that are looking for a certification can reach out to you, yep. um, especially in the Northern California area. Chris and I will be doing more seminars together in uh, later 2020. Um, again, thank you for taking the time to come on here and, and just kind of share your experiences, your stories. Again, you have a unique history with, uh, you know, like I said, very few people in the detection dog world work in a jail and then cross over into doing detection for sport. So, um, you know, thanks for sharing those, that information with us and our listeners and everything. No, I appreciate it. Um, I had a blast. Um, if you guys can't tell, I'm a little bit of a nut over this. <laughs> um, and yeah, no, you definitely go check him out on social media because he's one of the few that posts videos all the time. And video is such a powerful tool um, for just learning aspects. Yep. So I love a lot of the ones that you share because, I mean, like you should, you share great stuff, but you also share where there's a mistake that happens and yep. what people learn from it. So well, that's a big thing. If you don't, if you can't figure out your mistakes, you're not going to learn. Correct. If you don't challenge yourself. You're not going to grow. Absolutely. Accountability. We all have to be willing to go through that debrief, that uh, calling out our own mistakes, uh, owning them and mm -hmm. applying what we can do to be better. Yep. Uh, so we can't run from our problems. We have to address them and work through them and get better. Yep. That's so, the only way. Absolutely. All right. Well, for all those listeners, again, if you have any questions, comments, please email me, Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at Ford, F-O-R-D, K-Number-9.com. Until next time, I will talk to you then. Canine Services Unlimited. Canine Services Unlimited is owned by Justin Rigney and Mike Lilly. It is located in Loudoun, Tennessee. If you are looking to step up your game when it comes to training your dog, uh, or even if you happen to have a pet dog or a you are looking for some nose work training, contact Justin and Mike at CanineServicesUnlimited.com. They have a great training facility. Those of you that know Justin and Mike, you know you are getting solid foundation, very clear canine training with your dog. Uh, those in law enforcement have known Justin, uh, know he is a hardworking individual. Uh, he does amazing classes on canine power biting. He is well-versed in the knee-po-po style of training. Uh, and those who don't know what that is, you should look it up. Um, even in detection, those principles are also applied. Canine Services Unlimited, again, located in Loudoun, Tennessee, canineservicesunlimited.com, or their phone number, 865-455-5191. Again, if you're in the central part of the United States, if you're near Loudoun or Knoxville, Tennessee, I highly recommend contacting Justin and Mike and seeing how they can enhance your training, especially if you're in law enforcement or those that want to do nose work in that area, those are some great guys to get with. Again, canineservicesunlimited.com.